Well, and as you're seated, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and open in them again to John chapter 17, which is where our study has returned us this morning. And as you're turning there, I do want to go ahead and just acknowledge uh, something that I am confident will be a distraction at some point along the way here today. Uh, Having come down with that virus two weeks ago, I still have a lingering cough that just will not go away, and it is going to present itself as we go here today. So, welcome to life in a fallen world. Uh, I went and talked to the doctor this week, and they said, well, buddy, you better get used to it, because there's nothing we can do for you, and the cases we're seeing, this is lasting for six to eight weeks. And I said, okay, well, the truth of John 17 won't wait that long. So... (laughs) we're going to have to just plow through and do it anyway. So I'm going to do my best to uh, soldier on here and ask you to do your best to stick with me. And I apologize in advance for any distraction that I may cause this morning. And I trust that it will not be too distracting uh, because, folks, the truth that is in front of us this morning in John 17 is just so profound and powerful about the reality of who our Jesus Christ is and the glory of God that he has come to put on display, that it is utterly essential that we would see it, know it, and rejoice in it here together this morning. So, John 17. You know, perhaps you, like me, I know you have, have heard the phrase in the past, well, that's a real catch-22. And maybe you, like me, have wondered, what does that even mean? You know, a catch-22, we know what it is. It's a commonly accepted phrase used to describe any situation that is circular and therefore impossible. Essentially, you've got to do one thing before you can do another, but you can't do the other thing until you've done the first thing, leaving you in a serious jam or a catch-22. But where did that phrase actually come from? Well, I'm going to answer that point of curiosity for you here this morning. It is a phrase that came from a novel that was written in 1961 by a man named Joseph Heller about a World War II combat pilot who who comes up with the title Catch-22. And the reason for that is because he discovers that in the Army Regulation Manual, there is regulation number, you guessed it, 22, that allows for a pilot to be grounded on the grounds of insanity. But the only trouble for our poor friend is the moment that he claims insanity using Regulation 22, he's proving his sanity because only a sane man desires safety from actually flying. And thus, there is a regulation, a a catch in Regulation number 22, that prohibits anyone from ever being able to actually use it in the way that it was intended to be used. Originally, Joseph Heller was going to call this pickle a catch-18, but he eventually settled on catch-22 instead, and and thank goodness for that, because catch-18 just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Well, here, in the opening verses of John 17, we've already stumbled into a bit of an impossible situation for ourselves, a kind of a really big catch-22, if you will, And we've already seen it last week, but perhaps you weren't aware of it. So let me go ahead and give you our circular and impossible problem. You ready? Last week in verses 1 through 3, we saw how that the Father's intention is to glorify the Son. And every bit as much as it is the Father's intention to glorify the Son, it is the Son's intention to glorify the Father. And the means, as we learned last week, by which they glorify one another is as they bring us to a place of eternal life. 
where now we are able to perceive and to know their glory. But, but here is the catch-22 in that equation. In order for us to behold the glory of God, we must see the glory of Jesus Christ. But in order for us to see the glory of Jesus Christ, we first must behold the glory of God as it's found in Him. See, that's a good old-fashioned catch-22. So how, then, is it that we are able to see the glory of God if we can't see the glory of Christ until we've seen the glory of God? So how is God going to solve that problem? Well, look with me at verse 4 there in chapter 17, because this verse is the solution to this problem. It is the work of Jesus Christ to resolve the tension in these things for us. Jesus says, I glorified you, Father, on earth. Now it's knowable. Because he has accomplished the work that God gave him to do. That's the answer to our really big problem. Aren't you thankful that nothing is impossible with our God? See, there was only one possible way for this really significant conundrum to be resolved and for you to be able to see the glory of God <coughs> and find eternal life. And it's as the Son accomplishes His work to reveal to us in Himself the glory of God. See, the key to beholding the glory of God, which verse 3 taught us last week, is the definition of eternal life, is through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And in the verses that are before us here this morning and next week, verses 4 through 10, there's some really good news. And that news is this. Jesus has already accomplished all of the work that his father had given him to do. Which means now for you and for me that the fullness of the glory of God, it is knowable. But if verse 4 had never been uttered, if that work had never been done, then no glory would be knowable whatsoever. Thus, the work of Christ being done is essential to us beholding the glory of God and knowing the reality of eternal life. So because that work being accomplished for us is just so very important, today we're going to spend our time focusing in on the work that Jesus did to make God's glory knowable. And then next week, yes, this is going to be a two-parter, we are going to focus in on the glory that comes to Christ having accomplished this mission and the glory of God that now can be seen by us. And that's going to be a very surprising reality when we get there next week. But today, I want to help you see the importance of Christ's finished work for your life. So let's go ahead and begin. You ready? Let's begin by looking at the significance of Jesus' work. The significance of that work is identified for us here in verse 4. Let's read it again. Jesus says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Jesus makes a statement here that is just utterly stunning in its scope. He doesn't say, I did some of your work, or I did part of your work. What does he say there in the text? He says, I accomplished your work. Period. Full stop. End of paragraph. All of it. That, my friends, 
is just an amazing statement that we really need to consider this morning. Because it's the key, him having done this work, that makes our vision of God's glory possible at all. And that is eternal life. See, at this point, Jesus is only 33 years old. That's five years younger than me, for instance. And yet, he's able to say something that none of us, regardless of our age, will ever be able to say. That he has perfectly done everything God had for him to do. And the only way that that is possible is because of who he, as God, is. See, Jesus, we know this, don't we? He is one with the Father. He is God. He didn't just come from the Father. He's one with the Father. As we were told way back in John chapter 1, in the introductory verses to this entire book, we were told in these opening words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, you know it, was God. But then listen to this, and the Word became flesh now and and dwelt among us. And because of that, now, listen, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, filled with grace and truth. That's why Christ came. That is the nature of His work. It's to make the Father known to us. And so now, in and through Christ, that work of making the Father known happens. And our our problem is solved. See, it's as Jesus says here, I have done this work, making known God's glory completely, that our problem is solved. It says God puts on display His glory in Christ that now we can see the reality of who He is. The reality of Jesus' ability, His unique ability to do this for us is, is seen. It can be seen even right here in the text. See, in the original language, the, the word order of what Jesus says here literally reads like this. I, you, glorified. Where He, he grammatically glues Himself to the Father. They are one, you see, and that's the reason why he alone is qualified to make this statement that my work that was given to me by the Father, it has been done, for I am one with him. See, here's the truth. Apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ, there is no way for the glory of God to be seen. And friend, that makes the work of Jesus for you just incredibly important. Because if he had not done his work fully, God's glory would never have been known and eternal life would have remained veiled to you. But because Christ did his work fully, now the Father's nature can be seen and you can know eternal life. And so what Jesus is doing here in verse 4 is essentially hanging a, a victorious banner over his own life that simply says, mission accomplished. And in Him now, the resolution to our problem of not being able to comprehend or behold the glory of God, it is found. And so in Christ, when you look at Him, no longer do you see your world through the skewed lens of some black light that filters and shades the truth in a way that doesn't align with reality. No, now in Christ, you see the true light of God's glory that has come flooding in, as John 1.4 has already told us, truly in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light, it shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. It can't even hope to. It doesn't have a prayer of conquering the light. See, now, because of this statement that is made right here, now we can behold God's brilliant 
nature. And that means something important to us. It means that now eternal life can be ours. That's important enough that I think it should cause us to sit up and pay attention. But there's another feature of what Jesus says here that's really important for us to notice. Not just how important this is for us, but how important this also was for him and to him. Look there at verse 4 again, and, and, and you can see as you read that one more time, the obvious sense of satisfaction that Jesus has as he makes this statement. There is a victorious declaration in the tone here, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. See, doing the work that God had given to the Son, doing the work of God, it was very important to Jesus. Let me show you just how important this was to him by taking you back to John chapter 4. You, you can turn there with me if you want to. You don't have to. I'll go ahead and tell you the story. But in John chapter 4, Jesus has been traveling all day with his disciples. And you'll recall from our study in that chapter that his disciples go off into the city to procure some food and some supplies. And they've left him alone back at the well to rest. And Jesus, meanwhile, while the disciples are gone, what's he up to? Well, there he is at the city well talking to none other than a Samaritan woman, something that was completely socially unacceptable in that day. And yet, what is he doing with that woman? Well, well, he is revealing to her the fullness of the glory of God. And how does he do that? He does it by pointing to himself. He says there in John 4, I who speak to you, I am. And he uses the name of God. Yahweh is my name. And we're told there, right at the very height of that action, that it was just then, at that moment, when he utters the name of God and unveils his glory for this woman to see, she stands there just utterly speechless, that now the disciples come back food in hand. And, and these disciples, yet once again, unwittingly, just barge into a most profound moment, and they utterly fail to pick up on any of the social cues that something very important is going on here between Jesus and this woman. And they insist, essentially, if you can translate it this way, Rabbi, it's dinner time. Food served. It's hot. And Jesus, as the woman turns and runs off, says, Men, my food, listen now, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, it was the work of revealing the Father in himself that drove Jesus in everything that he did, that sustained Jesus in everything that he did. Not just because he knew how important that revelation of glory was to us, but because he knew how central it was to the plan of God being glorified. See, apart from this work of Christ being done, no glory is displayed, and thus God, God cannot be glorified. And we can file that potentiality under the heading of a really big problem, right? And so, in his life, Jesus has one purpose, and that is this, to do the work of his Father. And that's what he says he has done here in verse 4 of chapter 17. Now, before we get into the details of exactly how Jesus did that work, I do want to stop and make a point of application here for us to tie this truth into our lives. See, if, if, the, if the son saw it as being so central to his mission that he could describe doing God's work as being his food, then how much more 
Should you and I see it as being our purpose and being the thing that drives and sustains us to do the work that God has given us to do? Because you see, my friends, God has given us work to do. Everyone who was chosen by God for salvation was also designed for specific work in the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are now His workmanship. That's the way by which God is glorified after all. It means that we've been created in Christ Jesus for now good works, which, get this, God prepared beforehand that we should now walk in them. See, just as the Father had designed a work for the Son to do so that now we might behold His glory, now we, beholding the glory of the Father, also have work that was designed beforehand by the Father for us to do. And if it was this important for the Son to do this work, how much more important do you think it ought to be for us to get busy doing our work? So what does that mean specifically? Well, it means that we who have been saved have now been called into a relationship with the glory of God. We can know Him, we can love Him, we can serve Him. And that means that we show that love for Him as we seek to love others. It means that we were saved for a specific purpose to serve. And and in our service, we reflect the nature of God who is being formed within us as we show His love towards others. See, that's the way now that we glorify the Lord. It's as we devote ourselves specifically to the work that He has set before us. And that doesn't mean that we just seek to glorify the Lord in our employment, which is also to be under the glory of the Lord. But more specifically, it means we seek to do the work that He has set before us within the confines of His body. See, Ephesians goes on to explain that every one of us, because of the good works that God has designed for us to do, we have been given unique gifts to be empowered for the doing of that work. And therefore, we're responsible to use those gifts for the purpose of seeing this body built up into the maturity of Christ so that that we might all behold His glory together. So what's that look like in practice now? Let's get really practical, tactical with this. Well, it means using your life and every interaction that you have to point others towards the person of Jesus Christ. It looks like you, mature men, investing in other men for the purpose of their maturity in Christ. It looks like you, mature women, seeking to invest in other younger women for the sake of of, of their maturity. It looks like you young people using all the strength and energy that God has given to you to make much of Jesus Christ in each other's eyes. That's how this translates for us into practice according to 1 John. See, if glorifying the Lord by doing the work that God has given Him to do was the driving purpose of our Savior, should that not also now be our driving purpose and how, where, and when we serve as well? Just a pastoral thought for your consideration as we seek to apply this truth this morning. But let's get back to the text now. See, having seen just how important this was to Jesus, let's look at the specific ways now that he has completed his work. Because that's just what Jesus goes on here in verses 4 through 6 to describe. I want you to skip down now to verse 6. We're going to skip over verse 5. We'll come back to that next week because that introduces this idea of the glory that is His. And I want us to focus in now on the explanation that Jesus gives of His work. We've seen that this was really important, not only to Him, but also for us. So now that we've seen how important it is, let's go ahead and examine the substance of what it is that He has done for us. 
See, if this was Christ's all-important work to show us the Father, well, just how did he do that? Well, Jesus explains it here in verses 6 through 8. He reveals the Father to us in three ways. Now, let's go ahead and look at each one of these individually. The first thing we see here in verse 6 is that he reveals the Father's nature to us. Jesus very clearly explains now, look there, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That's the first statement of how Jesus has done this work. He says, I have manifested your name, Father. That's what I have done completely. And the word that he uses there to describe this revelation of the Father is a rather dramatic word that essentially means to rip the veil off of something with a bit of a flourish. It means to publicly expose something and make that which was previously unknown completely clear now. See, what humanity has been searching for ever since Eden, namely the vision of the face of God's glorious self that was lost when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Jesus says, here it is, and he points to himself. See, now that doesn't mean that because Christ did his work, now we simply know God's name. That's the claim that Jesus makes here. I have manifested your name. Does that mean that all we know of God is just the reality of his name? No, we know much more about God because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, because there is quite a bit in a name in this case. You've heard that old expression, what's in a name? In this case, there's a lot, because the name of God, for those of you Old Testament scholars, is fundamentally an expression of his character. See, his name represents the totality of who he is. Let me show that to you. Back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees God in a burning bush, and God says to Moses, go back to my people and lead them out of Egypt. And Moses says, I'm going to have to tell them who you are. I can't say that some unknown God has sent me. I need to know your name. And so God there for the first time says this, tell the people of Israel, my name is I am who I am. And so say to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me. That name in Hebrew is Yahweh. It means I am. Now that name, I am, it points us to know the self-existent nature of God. He is who he is. And he is who he is apart from you. But, but more than that reality about the fullness of who he is apart from you, it points us to a second reality that he wants us to know him for who he is. See, when he says, my name is I am, that kind of begs a question, doesn't it? You are what exactly? And it's that question. Who is God that Jesus has come to answer? See, that's the reason why seven times in this book, Jesus has used the name of God, Yahweh, I am. And he has combined it with an image, a graphic image, to make God's nature known. Who is God? Well, hasn't he been explaining that through the entire first two-thirds of John's gospel? Let me just run through with you these seven I am statements as Jesus reveals the nature of what God's name means. 
He says in chapter 6, verse 35, I am, Yahweh is, the bread of life. What does that mean? It means that God alone is fit to satisfy the hunger of your soul. He says, for instance, in chapter 8, verse 12, I am, Yahweh is, the light of the world. God alone is the one who can bring you spiritual sight. He says in chapter 10, verse 7, I am, Yahweh is, the door. God alone is the entry point into eternal life. He says in verse 11 of chapter 10 again, I am the good shepherd. What does that mean? It means that God alone, folks, is fit to care for you. He goes on in chapter 11. The pace is accelerating now. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. God alone can defeat the power of death and the grave. This is who your God is. But Jesus isn't done. He is still revealing the name of the Father, the nature of who He is. In chapter 14, verse 6, He gives us a three-for-one special. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God alone is the only one who can reveal Himself to you, and He has done that in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus wraps up His revelation of God's name there in chapter 15, verse 1, where He says, I am Yahweh. Yahweh is the vine which is just so beautiful. It means that He alone is the one who provides you with the vibrancy now of eternal life, infusing you with His own nature so that now you can live before God instead of receiving the death that you were due. That is who your God is. And we see Him perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. See, the whole point of Jesus coming it can be summarized in this statement right here. I have revealed your name. John 1.18 states it this way. Look, no one has ever seen God, the only God. But the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has now made Him known. See, and Jesus continues on here. In verse 6, he says, This is the way by which I did my work. I made your invisible nature known. But he provides us now with an understanding of just how important this revelation of God's nature is for us. Because see, on your own, my friends, you and I would never be able to actually behold the glory of God. Even though Jesus has perfectly put it on display for us, even though he has made it known for us, the black darkness and death of our hearts is so overwhelming that even though it's on display, left to our own devices, we would never be able to see it and respond to it. And that's the truth that Jesus gives us in the second half of the verse here. He hasn't manifested the glory of God's name to just everybody. No, the only people who actually are able to perceive this glory are, look, those people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave me to them, and so now they've seen my glory, and so they have now kept your word. What does all of that mean? Well, it means that on your own, you can't begin to see and comprehend God's glory. It takes an act of God to enable you to be able to see the glory of God. See, it's very important here. He says, essentially, that, that you are not chosen by God because of any intrinsic worth that you had. No, where did you come from? <laughs> he says, 
You came out of this world. You're not chosen by God for the sake of salvation because God looked down ahead through time and saw that, oh, that one's going to be a noble one who will choose me. No. You were part of this world with nothing to commend you in God's sight. And yet, in His marvelous grace and mercy, through His sovereign election of you, He has determined to give you a certain one to Christ now for the purpose of redemption so that you might know the reality of His glory. As Romans chapter 9 teaches us, He did this solely for the purpose of, quote, making known the riches of His glory to the vessels of mercy, which He now has prepared beforehand for glory, even those of us whom He has called. So what does that mean for you and for me now? Well, if you are a vessel of mercy, if you have beheld the wonderful glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, if you were chosen by Him for the purpose of redemption and you've got a relationship with Him, well then, friend, then you need to fall on your face at the sight of God's glorious mercy and praise Him for His incredible kindness in enabling you to see the glory that Jesus has now come to manifest. See, it means that that we must now live in such a way that, that when God looks at us, He sees the power of Christ at work within us such that He can say, this is one who keeps my word. And that's possible only because we've been given to Christ for salvation. His power is that which has chosen us. His power is that which has revealed His glory to us. His power is that which redeems us. And His power is that which now enables us. Let me drive home to you the importance of this truth that Christ alone is the one who makes the Father's nature known to you. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 explains just how significant this is for us. Here's what it says. Listen carefully. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. What a privilege that is for us. But He's not done. His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. What great glory has been bestowed upon Jesus Christ. Through whom He created the world. What power belongs to Christ. And this one, Jesus now, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And so He upholds the universe by the word of His power. What is that a call to? It is a call for us to behold the sovereign majesty of God's great glory through the face of your King Jesus. That is what Christ has come to make possible. This is the work that He has accomplished, that now we would be able to see the nature and glory of God. My friends, I don't know about you, but that is nothing but sheer mercy and grace on display towards those of us who know Him. It is glory on display that now we can see and know. (laughs) But look with me now, because there's more to the revelation of the Father by the Son than just the very fact of His name and His character. No, Now we're going to see in verse 7 the revelation of His purpose as well. This is what else the Son does. He reveals not just the Father's name and His character. He reveals (coughs) His purpose. And let me show you the importance of this perhaps with an illustration. Think back with me, those of you who were here, 
to several years ago when I was candidating at this church. You all, at that point, and rightly so, had a lot of questions for me. You wanted to get to know who I was. I remember a particular Q&A out here in the lobby where we covered everything from theology to personality and what felt to me like everything from soup to nuts. But how, I ask you, would it have gone if I had said to you, my name is Rich Gregory and my nature is to be a pastor and you need to know nothing about my plans. You need to know nothing about my philosophy of ministry or my style of leadership. All you need to know is my identity. Needless to say, I don't think I would be standing here today, right? What's my point? My point is this, that truly knowing someone intimately, really understanding them, requires that we know how someone thinks, what their plans are, what their purposes are. That's essential to truly knowing them. And that's the idea here in the text in verse 7, where Jesus doesn't just reveal the Father's name and nature and call it a day. No, His work is so comprehensive that He reveals to us now the Father's good intentions towards us as well. See, he is the very embodiment of God's glorious plan. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me, it is from you. He's revealing not just the Father's nature. He's revealing the Father's desires that we would come to now know him. That is the purpose of God. So what was the plan? Well, we, we saw that last week, didn't we? The plan was for the Father to give everything to the Son. All truth, all glory, all honor, power, and authority. And then it was for the Son to take all of that from the invisible hand of the Father and make it visible before the eyes of all God's chosen ones so that we might now have the capacity to know Him fully. And behold, the richness of our God on display in the person of Jesus Christ. And did Jesus Christ do this part of His work? Well, with a dramatic and rather urgent exclamation point, Jesus says again here, mission accomplished. See, that word there now in the text is a pretty strong kind of marker of time that points to an event that, that took place in the past but has results that are continuing into the present. He says, now they have already, these chosen ones, come to know because they've seen my life Something that will stick with them forever. And what is it now that we know that sticks with us forever? It is the knowledge of who our God is. For having beheld the glory of His name, we cannot wash that image from our mind. We cannot wash His purity and holiness from our mind. See, nothing less than the fullness of God's intention to reveal Himself to us and live in relationship to us has been shown through the person of Jesus Christ. He says, now they know that everything you have given to me to give to them, it comes from your hand. See, Christ has made known to us the Father's nature and his intentions. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 states this truth really powerfully this way, and I want you to hear this and listen carefully now. In fact, write this text down and go back and look at it later this week because it just blows my mind. God, the one who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has now shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How did he do this? 
in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God has done, and he did it through the work of Christ. So when you look at the crucified and risen Lord of glory, what is it that you are to see in him? You're to see nothing less than a booming statement from heaven about God's good intentions to radically prove himself glorious by loving you, an unworthy sinner. And now, now his purpose has been fulfilled in the accomplishment of Christ's work. But see, there's one final piece to what Christ reveals. He doesn't just show us the Father's nature and his plans. No, he also gives us some rather specific instructions for how we now can live in the light of God's glory. Do you see how comprehensive the work of Jesus is for us here in this text? He shows us the Father's name and nature. He shows us his intentions. And then he gives us a very direct and specific message as well. See, look at verse 8 with me. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know them in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me, John 17, 8. See, the words that Christ gave to his disciples, they were the words that God had given to Christ to communicate to us now. You know, one of the, one of the first things that you learn in speech class is that for communication or in marriage for that matter, um, you learn that two things have to happen. First, A transmitter must transmit, and a receiver must receive. If a transmitter is transmitting and there is no receiver receiving, then communication is not happening. Same thing. If a receiver is receiving but no transmitter is transmitting, there is no communication there. See, communication doesn't happen if I just stand up here for an hour coughing (laughs) and, and, and none of you are actually listening. Same thing. You could be out there listening, but, it, but if I'm not actually talking, then there is no communication. True communication requires that a message be both sent and that it be received. And look at the nature of God's communication here in the person of Jesus Christ. Was this work accomplished or not? He says, I have given them, transmitted the words that you gave me. So Christ receives the message, he gives the message. And they then, in turn, have received the message that Christ has given to them, that he came from God, and they have believed, clung to that message. Perfect communication, both sides of it having been completed. See, this is the message that God has now given to us. He has given us his word in the living word, the person of Jesus Christ. And and now, because that word has been perfectly transmitted to us, we know who he is and we know what he expects. See, here's the implication of this now. If you want to behold the glory of God, which is life, then you must open up the word of God. For it is the word of God, the message from God, that reveals to us the glory of Jesus. And it's the glory of Jesus that enables you to see and know the glory of the Father. See, there is no life apart from the life that is found in Christ, and He is revealed to us in this word alone. See, and thus, through His word, are we able to know God, the only true one, Jesus says in verse 2, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And thus is the grand purpose of God for his own glory to be displayed, fulfilled, as we get to know him, as we open his word and find in this word the glory of his revelatory son, Jesus Christ. 
And now in him, we behold the glory of God. Do you see how all that works? I hope you do, because there's a really important truth now that we need to make sure as a church that understands and loves God's word, we need to make sure we understand this now. Here's a pointed piece of application. And we can really pull it back out of John chapter 5. See, in John 5, Jesus condemns the Jewish leaders because they were searching the scriptures for the glory of God, but they were not acknowledging the reality of Jesus Christ and his own glory. See, these people... They knew the scriptures frontwards and backwards. They had it memorized and committed to heart. And there they are, studying the word of God, seeking to know all about his glory so that they may have life. But they saw it as being nothing more than a self-help guide to give them a better life. And, And they refused to see the revelation of God that walked into their midst in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? John 1 says, because their hearts were darkened. And the price tag for their failure to see the glory of Christ was that they missed the point of the scriptures and the glory of God. And therefore, all of their intense study became utterly useless. Listen carefully now. Jesus says in John 5, 37, look, the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness of me. His voice you have never heard. Does that sound familiar to the text that we're in? His form you have never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you. Why? Because you don't believe in me, Jesus says. The one whom, by the way, he has sent to make himself known. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they, the scriptures, that are there to bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. My friends, I I, I fear that it can be so very dangerous and easy for us to make a similar mistake. We sing songs of the glory of God. We devote ourselves to the study of the word, and yet all of it we fail to look for and properly worship the person of King Jesus who is the link that reveals to us the glory of God in this word. And apart from seeing him in this word, there is no glory to behold. And therefore, all that Bible study becomes utterly useless if you're not seeing in it the glory of who God is on display through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why when we gather here this morning, we seek to magnify Christ. It's why we're commanded in Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 to proclaim Christ and Him alone. Because it is Him now alone, being the fullness of God in human flesh, that reveals to us the nature of who our God is. The only way for us to know the glory of God is as you see and behold Jesus for who He is. And for that to happen, for that to happen, you must open up your Bible and in its pages, you must gaze upon the glory of God's nature, gaze upon the beauty of his purposes and understand his message to you, which is summarized in the life and work of Jesus Christ. And that is the call of this text for us. See, it's because Jesus Christ fully perfectly, sovereignly completed His work that now the Father who once could not be seen 
has now been manifested to us. There is no catch-22 here for us in how to behold the glory of God because according to these verses, Jesus has solved that problem for us. His work revealing to you everything that you need to know about God for life and godliness. Which means that now, my friend, there is only one thing for you to do. His glory having been uncovered for you, a chosen one to be able to gaze upon, means now that we must, we must get to work. We must fix our eyes on Christ, setting our mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father's glory. For in Him alone is the glory of God now made knowable for you. See, He, Jesus Christ, has done His part. His mission was accomplished. But now it falls to us to do ours, to know Him, to love Him. And we must open up His Word and dig into the knowledge of the glory of our wonderful God that has been brought to us courtesy of Jesus Christ. And it's to the knowledge of that glory that we are going to turn next week. And there is some rather profound, powerful, and even surprising truth about how that glory gets manifested and what it is that he makes possible for you to see. So we'll dig into that next time. But let's close this morning <clears throat> in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we do thank you for who you are. You are who you are apart from us, and yet you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us in Christ. And so because of that, now not only can we see you, behold your glory, but we can know you and walk in relationship to you because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. He truly is the only one fit to resolve our crisis, and he has accomplished just that mission. So for this, we thank you. May we be people who truly seek to live unto your glory now, knowing that in Christ it's been perfectly manifested to us. May it be the driving passion and desire of our lives, and may we walk every day in light of the knowledge that's been brought to us of who you are and the expectations you've given to us in your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, let's do stand together this morning and conclude our time by reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. <laughs> now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations and ages, forever and ever. Amen. Go in grace today.